Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how to plan and how to launch new products with campaigns designed to drive proper adoption. My guest today is the VP of Marketing at HubSpot. You might have heard of HubSpot before. She's an advisor on EverTrue, HelpScout, United Way. My guest leads a team of 75 plus marketers. She oversees the content, the product marketing, customer demand teams. She seems to touch a lot of area. An interesting point is she's also a podcaster. So she also has a podcast called The Growth Show that has more episodes published than everyone hates marketers. And 190 plus so far, so very congratulations on this. Uh, and she knows a thing or two about launching new stuff, new products, including landmark HubSpot uh, products like the free CRM, the service hub, conversations, and also three different uh, podcasts. So the growth uh, show is one, but you also help to launch two others with completely different area. So yeah, that's why I'm so happy to talk to you, Megan Kinney Anderson on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I am so psyched to be here. It's great to uh, get a chance to talk with you. I love product launches, so I'm psyched to be diving into that area too. So internet is a jungle, right? I think it's it's fair to say. If you go to Product Hunt, which is, for people who don't know, a site where people launch new stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, every day there are like new products, new stuff. Like it's insane, the creativity that goes in there, but it's also insane the competition you get for attention, right? Yeah. And that's only the top of the iceberg, right? Absolutely. So how, why, I mean, I've kind of answered the question in, in the way I've described it, but beside that, why do companies struggle so much to be noticed in overall, do you think? You know, I think it it's a crowded field, right? So most, if you look at what's changed about the world over the last couple of decades, it used to be that for any one category, there were maybe... Uh, half a dozen different options. Today, if you look, and certainly in the software space, but in all fields, there's just been this explosion of options for different products to choose from, each of them handling things a slightly different way. So knowing who you are in that space as a company, as a product, and who you're going after and, and combining those two things to put together a launch strategy that actually stands out is getting harder. Uh, and it's one of those fields that is also driven by hype and driven by practices. So things that worked for the last launch that you did and that were you know, sensational and did really, really well may not work for this launch uh, because it is such a fast moving field of expectations. So um, yeah, I think that it's, it's crowded, it's noisy, uh, it's evolving all the time. And so your strategies have to match that, but that's also what makes it so challenging and fun. Yeah, if it was so easy, everyone would do it, I suppose, exactly. right? Yeah, so totally. I, I have this, I have this example in my head. I just, I don't know, I didn't prepare for it, but just uh, sparked when you talked about it. I remember Dave Gerhardt from Drift, who mm-hmm. I think they've nailed launch pretty well. They've kind of every time they they've kind of understood that the channel was working, they would use it as much as possible, and they, they used to use Product Hunt every single month for new stuff because they they were milking it as much as possible. Yeah. But this is the very, very top of the iceberg companies that have a lot of money, uh, very much like HubSpot, right? So I'm going to challenge you today on something, right? Because as I described before the start of this, this, this episode, people listening right now might not have 
the budget that HubSpot has, right? Yeah. But uh, because of you have like so much experience launching stuff, because of like trial and error and the mistakes you've made, successes, I'm pretty sure you can you can do something. You can explain. Uh, we can deconstruct your method that would still work for people who don't necessarily have a lot of money, who haven't necessarily launched new products before. Um, and not, I'm not necessarily in the tech world, right? So I'm removing a lot of stuff here, but it's going to be a bit challenging, which is where it's going to be. It's going to be nice. So let's say, let's forget you are at HubSpot for a bit. Let's just, let's consider that you quit and you launch your own stuff. The only thing you can really rely on is your knowledge. You know, no one knows you, let's say, let's consider that, which is not true. You don't have a podcast. Sure, you know, yeah. No audience, right? Like you really have to start from the foundations. You, the things you know have worked in the past um, and you don't have a lot of cash, right? You'll tell me whether you need 50 grand or two grand or let's just play with some sort of a ballpark figure. Yeah. Let me ask you the question. How do we make sure we get noticed? How do we make sure we launch something that people will actually adopt as well, right? Because it's another thing that is important. Yeah, so I'm going to start with the $0 launch because we actually did a lot of $0 launches if you discount uh, headcount and, and the people actually working on it. It's only been recently that we've put ad dollars behind launches. Um, and it's very possible to conduct a standout launch without having a ton of budget behind it. The biggest thing though is you have to figure out and get really precise about your biggest points of leverage uh, within your marketing strategy, within your audience. I'll tell you what I mean about that. One of the biggest breakthroughs that we had as a company was um, I guess about three years into my time here at HubSpot, we had all of these agencies, uh, marketing agencies that would sell services on top of HubSpot and or they partnered with us for integrations. And before we would just launch a product and they would find out about it at the same exact time as everybody else did. And um, we, we flipped that uh, again about three years uh, after I came into HubSpot and just started to give those people who are partners of ours, who are evangelists, um, our best customers. Uh, and you mentioned Drift. Drift does this really well. Knowing in your existing audience who cares about you the most and um, started pulling them in ahead of launch and treating them almost like under NDA, but treating them like an extension of your sales team or an extension of your marketing team. The beautiful thing about today is that everyone has a platform. Uh, you know, it may be a podcast they started in their spare time. It may be a YouTube presence. It may be their corporate blog. But all of these partners and customers have their own platforms. And if you can get, can get them coordinated, identify who they are, coordinate them, um, and give them materials, right? Give them the raw details about your products and any assets that you're using for launch so that then come launch day, they can launch with you at the same time. Then suddenly it's more than just you talking about your product from a soapbox. It's, you know, a dozen people or a hundred people or however big you can get that unit um, to launch all at once and create this surround sound of noise for no dollars exchanged. I think that's one thing is just finding those advocates who can launch with you. Uh, and in the beginning, that may be small. It may be just a handful of your best customers, but that matters when you're looking for uh, momentum in a launch. I think the other thing that I would point to for a low budget or no budget launch is investing a lot in um, a small assortment of launch assets. And by that, I mean, you know, you don't need to create the world. You don't need to have 
15 case studies and a, and a myriad of, of product pages. You, but you should have one commanding point of view, um, whether that is a blog post or on a on a, uh, a landing page of yours or a piece of social content. But one thing that has the most crisp articulation about what it is that you stand for as a business and what it is that this product stands for and put all of your arrows and all of your um, emphasis towards pushing that thing out. So I'm um, nodding here like an idiot. Yeah. And it's a podcast. No one will see that. So that's <laughs> why I have to explicitly I'm nodding. So you've teased that like those two steps are pretty important. And you've already gone ahead and explained the second one, which is great because we're going to touch on that in the next few minutes. But let's go back to step one, right? Because sure. I think we can go one step lower, okay. like one step deeper, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, as you mentioned, you want to identify your kind of your best customers, your best partners, the people like your core, dare I say, influencers, even though I, you know, I this know, world is, <laughs> yeah, right, we, we, we are in the same. Anyway, let's, let's not say influencer, your best people, like your people, you know, your audience, the ones who would support you, your fans, right? Now, let's challenge you even more. As you said, it's possibly that it's possible that we are launching our first product. It's possible that we don't have a massive audience and you say we need to start small. So, how do I how do I identify those people that I know will likely support me or my business uh, like to help us launch this thing? Yeah, I think this is actually where product marketing extends beyond marketing. So it's got to infiltrate into your product organization and into the actual development of the software or, or feature that you're creating. And so it starts with who's in your beta group. You built this product for someone. Who did you invite into the beta group to be some of your early testers? And being really intentional about who those people are, they should be, um, you know, they should be completely identified with what the problem you're trying to solve and the audience you're trying to pick. But also, like, they should be good communicators. They should be, you should see if they've got a following um, and try to factor those things into your beta program. And then when you do go to launch, you can launch with those beta users. Um so I think making sure that product and marketing are kind of growing up side by side together and they're exchanging um, points of reference and, um, and levers as they go to market. Um, one thing that sprang to mind um, that I've heard before, right, in this, in this first part, which is like, I don't think those people, before you even launch the product, talking about it before you even launch the product, you mentioned NDA, under NDA, of course. Mm -hmm. But how do you convince someone who is very afraid of sharing their stuff to the world, even the not your business. Like there's a lot of companies out there who are so afraid of what if a competitor steal our idea and yeah. do it instead. So how do you convince those people to say, you know what, actually, you know, just fucking share it to people, you yeah. know, before. So how do you convince them to do that, to do so, to change their mindset? I think it's just that you're going to get copied. There are probably a hundred HubSpot knockoffs today. Um, and, that's okay. Like the technology uh, is cheaper and cheaper as we go about this. And so you kind of just have to let go of that fear because it's going to happen. Uh, and there's so much leverage in opening up the tent a little bit, inviting people in that it's not worth the trade-off to be protectionist about your idea because odds are there's somebody else working on the same idea at the same time. Um, it's definitely a culture shift, but uh, I think it is one that will uh, really be formative in the way that you go about, you know, building your company. So let's go, let's go into this step again. So we know 
in an ideal world, we have like people who are like in a beta group um, that have influenced the product. And you mentioned the P world, the product marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's do a little like annex to this. Just if you could describe what product marketing stands for in your, sure. in your mind, please. Yeah, so product marketing is kind of at the intersection of the marketing team and the product organization that builds this offer, but also the sales team and the service team. It's sort of what takes this seed of an idea that was the product and uh, translates it out to the rest of the world. So the aspects of product marketing that we do, and, and frankly, it means something different in different organizations, but ours is very tied into the product organization. So for us, it is about market research and competitive research to inform what we're actually building in the product, uh, then positioning of that product. So, and we could talk a little bit about positioning because there's a fine art there too. Uh, then the actual um, go-to-market strategy. So, you know, is this a customer-focused launch? Is this a net new audience launch? Um, then the actual campaign elements to bring that launch um, to life. And then following up with that, how do you continue to post-launch drive adoption of that product, um, cross-sales, upsells if you're a multi-product company, that kind of thing. So, you know, at HubSpot, we sort of have generalist marketers whose job is just to help HubSpot grow. Product marketers are really tied into the, the four different products that we have and making sure that those are successful as well. And uh, to me, product marketing is really the team that is needed to be there because product has lost touch with their people a bit. And I know I'm being very challenging here. I know like it's probably not wrong, but it could be a bit true as well in a sense that, you know, you build a product and you need kind of a team to translate it to the world, as you say, in yeah. an ideal world, you're going to need that, right? But it's kind of in this tech world where things move so fast, where you develop very complex product, you need this kind of translation so that people get it because they don't have time to think about stuff. So they need to just get it fast. And as you say, in the step two that we're going to cover, you need to make sure they understand it, to tell a good story, a unique point of view, et cetera, et cetera. So in an ideal world, it's a very loaded question, but in an ideal world, should we need product marketing or is it kind of a, a, a way to solve a problem that arises because of the complexity of the world we live in? I think in your early stages as a business, product marketing is really kind of brand marketing because in the very early stages, your product is your brand. And um, so it may take a different format, but you still need that, you know, because it's so easy to copy software or products, it can't just be about like, you know, putting up walls and roofs and, and shoving a product out to the world. You actually have to know what the unique differentiator of that product is. Uh, and so I think it's actually essential in the early stages, the, the discipline and the practice of product marketing. I don't know that you have to hire a product marketer as your first hire, but I think that that whether it sits on your product team or your marketing team, that discipline of understanding differentiation and market insights and uh, launch strategy, you know, most tech companies, most SaaS companies today are very product driven companies. And so without that, you're kind of just shoving features out into the world without any context. Um, yeah. So I like that. Yeah. It's the mindset, right? It's, yeah. it's discipline and the mindset, not not whether or not you have a product marketing team on board. No, you know, my my first hires, if I were starting a startup, would be um, an analyst and a content creator, right? I think that because content is compounding uh, and the the earlier you start, 
developing a blog, putting a podcast out there, the more visits organically you'll get over time. Um, you want to start that as soon as possible. And then you need you need an analytics hire um, and somebody who understands reporting and insights to help you make the right decisions um, in your marketing strategy or in your business strategy moving forward. So I would start there. Then I would layer in some of the other functions. So let's say we have a good understanding of uh, the people we need to reach out to, like those partners, those people of influence who are very much eager to help you out. Uh, like before we move on to step two, I feel we haven't touched on every single thing there. Um, let's say we don't have a beta program. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say we don't have those people who helped us shape it. How do you advise on hiring those people or identifying them in, in the group of customers or in the audience you have? Do you have any tips on this? Usually... You know, most people don't develop a product in a vacuum. They may not have a formalized beta program, but usually like they're hearing some things from friends or customers that that informed the choice they made to actually launch this thing to begin with. I think it's really about how you formalize that group of people and the kind of relationship you have with them um, that that takes a little bit of, of thought and, and should be built out as sort of a second stage in your company. But I think that frankly, like if you're, if you're building a product and you've never talked to a would be or existing customer about it, you should probably reconsider what you're doing. Um, it's just, it's so formative to actually deciding what you're going to do. Um, you, you know, that I just don't think you can do without it. So finding them is, you know, it's listen to sales calls. I'll get into tools later on, but like listen to sales calls, see what the complaints are that you're hearing, even close loss calls, understand why they, why they decided not to buy. And, um, the ones that you do win, try to pull out a handful of those to help coach you as you go on to develop your product portfolio. Yeah. And as you say, it's kind of step zero. Um, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So we are in this, for the rest of the episode, we do assume that you've talked to people developing your product. You haven't done it in a vacuum. And when we say product, I think we say it quite loosely. You don't have to be in tech to follow this episode through and actually launch something. It could be anything, right? So, I mean, you might mention stuff that are very, very specific to tech products, but I don't think so. I think it, 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 most of the stuff you're going to say are very, very much uh, foundational uh, that could be applied anywhere. I'll add one more thing in there. Um because you talked about it, it doesn't necessarily have to be beta users or customers. I think it helps. But um, look, I would ask yourself the question, you got into this business for a reason, right? Like there's a problem that you saw in the world that you were trying to address with this company, with this product. And so being really clear with yourself about what that reason is, then you can go out into the world and find people, maybe they're They've never, they're never going to be a customer of yours, but they share the same vision of what the problem is. And I would reach out to them. And these are people who you actually could call influencers, but like I would reach out to them and bond over that same uh, hate for the problem you're trying to solve um, and, and incorporate them into like what you're doing and, you know, make sure that they are aware of how you're trying to solve it too. Cause they could also be, you know, um, a resource for you and an evangelist for you down the line. I love this. The reason why I love this is because you didn't mention you need to reach out to people who fit a certain demographic. So whatever age your customers are and then whatever job they have, no, you talk about the beliefs, you know, whoever yeah. share the same belief because this is way more powerful 
than just saying, hey, you're a B2B product marketer. I'm sure you'd be interested in that. No. Instead, you say, I like, I think I saw your tweet. I think you believe in the same stuff. I, we both hate, I don't know, the word influencer. This mm-hmm. is why we're launching this. This is much easier to convince people because we appeal to psychographic. And just by the way, this is an internal kind of joke. I think we have with listeners at this point where I mention it in every single episode, the word psychographic, but this is it. Like you appealing to identity instead of appealing to demographics. Yeah. And God, we live in a time where all of this is just readily available for us. I mean, you mentioned Twitter. It's never been easier to find someone, to find a tribe out there that uh, is annoyed by the same stuff and believes in the same vision of a future. Um, like I'm, I'm really into civic tech and smart cities. I very quickly could find uh, a collection of people who are interested in the same thing. If Should I ever want to go like start a product in smart cities? I know how to reach out to them. So again, I think that's, I'm glad you pushed on that. I think that's an important point. It doesn't have to be your customer base. I think it makes a better product if it is. Um, but even outside of that customer base, there are believers in what you believe in um, anywhere. And they're so easy to find today. You mentioned the word tribe, right? That's important. Find your tribe. Find the people who believe in the same thing. And you you mentioned hating the same thing, which I mean, I might be I might be wrong here, but I it feels like this is easier to get people behind something that we both hate, but rather than something we both love. Uh, there's something a bit more powerful in finding a, a common enemy, right? Um, which is why this podcast like played on that a lot from the start, mm-hmm. um, and it's not for <laughs> everyone. That's actually yeah, exactly right. You nailed it. Well, yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> Good We're doing our best. Podcast, yeah. We're doing our best. So, okay, step one, I think we nailed it. You nailed it. Step two, and I'm very into that. Like positioning, all of that is something we talk a lot on the podcast because it's so foundational and could make or break anything. So I'm not 100% sure I remember exactly the way you phrase it, but I will let you explain. Once you have those people, once you have your tribe, mm-hmm. what is step two? What do you advise on doing? Well, I think... Uh, I I would take a step back and talk about positioning for a minute because I think that is foundational. If you don't have strong positioning, it's just always going to be a hindrance on, you could have the, you could have a million dollars to put towards this launch, but if the positioning isn't there, it's going to just kind of uh, be watered down. Uh, And I think that positioning, you know, there's, there's all this sort of common thinking around like, okay, good positioning has to have a target customer and some pain points and a solution and differentiation. There's like ingredients that you can look up online for positioning. But I think all of that boils down to one, um, really two things. Who are you fighting for and what are you fighting against? And I think that you talked about enemy before and it really does, it's, it's important to have an enemy. Um, now you can you can take that too far, but I think in the world of positioning, an enemy kind of anchors you against or anchors everything else. And it becomes this point that you can go back to like, because if you know what you're fighting against, you know what you're fighting for. And what I would say is that enemy shouldn't be like company X that is a little bit bigger than me, you know, that I'm trying to take down. The enemy shouldn't be another company. The enemy should be a broader idea or um, or it could be a characteristic of some of your competitors, but I'd be really careful about making like a competitor the enemy because that's really more about you than the customer. But bottom line, I think you need really solid anchoring for every message that goes out. And the best way to anchor is to know what you're fighting against. 
So who you're fighting for, which kind of defines your tribe, your audience, and mm -hmm. what you're fighting against, which was described before, which is the enemy. What is the common enemy you want people to rally you against? Can you give me a quick example like that on the fly from like one of the previous products you launched? Just briefly an example of how that sounds narratively. Yeah, so I can actually talk a little bit about how that's evolved for us over the years. So so when HubSpot started, it actually had really strong uh, enemy-centered positioning. So HubSpot started as a marketing uh, as marketing software only. And the thing that they were fighting against was outbound marketing. And by outbound marketing, I mean the interruptive, like cold calling, direct ads, irrelevant marketing that sort of gets in the way of people. And the reason why that outbound marketing was the enemy is because people couldn't stand it anymore. There's so much of it. Uh, they were learning to filter it out. They got ad blockers. They got all of these things. It became really easy to make that outbound marketing the enemy and then offer the alternative, which was inbound marketing, which is much more about consumer-driven uh, marketing. So content designed to be found online when you're searching for it. Um, you know, social that is that spreads word, word of mouth to word of mouth because it is inherently interesting. So the shift from let's stop um, putting this barrage of advertising and irrelevant content out into the world and let's start attracting people with stuff that actually matters to them. That was early days. Now, that was great differentiation. We were only a marketing product. The inbound outbound was a nice, clear line. But then we added sales software and we added service software and we added a CRM and we added a whole ecosystem of tools. And suddenly this thing that was such a strong positioning point for us um, became sort of a hindrance in some of these other conversations because people would be like, oh, I know you for marketing. I know you because you're the inbound marketing people. And that I, I love it. I love that you fight advertising. I love that you fight like cold calls, but like I'm in customer service. So how is that relevant for me? So we had to go back and reposition the product line and reposition the company without, by the way, uh, abandoning inbound outbound because that still resonated really well in the marketing space. Uh, and so you'll, you'll kind of find that you have to do this every few years is like, Decide if the enemy that you were fighting has changed at all um, and if it is still relevant to your product line today. Uh, but that's an example of, a, of an enemy statement. I think other examples, um, you mentioned Drift before. I think they did a, a phenomenal job with calling forms the enemy. Um, they were, you know, coming at a time when forms were getting really, really long, uh, even on our own sites. And um, people, customers were really annoyed with filling them out. Uh, and so notice that as a pain point and a friction point that was getting in the way of marketing and sales made that the enemy early on. Now their products evolved and now they're going to have to kind of figure out how to evolve that too. Um, but I think th those are a couple of good examples. Um, the genius of Drift, if I may interrupt you on this, the genius of Drift on this particular position, and I think it's a good, a good case study, a bit like Salesforce, those are very well known, but... I'm glad you mentioned that because it feels like anyone can really do it if you do it properly. The genius of Drift on their positioning is not only do they pick an enemy, they pick an enemy that everyone knows. Yeah. Like it, it could be easy to pick an enemy that no one really gives a, you know, care about. Totally. But here they use the habit and an existing habit of your tribe, the tribe of people you want to attract. They all use forms. Exactly as you said, you used to have a lot of forms. Mm -hmm. I mean, HubSpot is known to have crazy long forms. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember like, because you want to 
you know, target the right that was people. That the model, right? Uh, yeah. And the so, model changes and the model evolves exactly. and sort of catching right before the model evolves, catching that thing that is driving the evolution is incredibly valuable and rich, right? So, and you can do that in any industry, like finding the thing that is just starting to irritate people or starting to add friction into their experience. The enemy is usually found in a friction point. Um, and, you know, so I think that zeroing in on what that is for your industry matters a lot and being able to name it and literally market it. That's, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. And, and it might be, I'm going to push you back on category creation, category name in two minutes. But before that, let's go back to one point about this. Sure. I'm glad you mentioned this narrative because positioning, I've interviewed a lot of experts on positioning in this podcast and a lot of people have different definition, but it's always kind of goes both down to the same thing. A lot of experts would talk to you about, you know, you need to pick a target, you need to pick competitive mm -hmm. alternatives, you need to have a feature set, you know, it's very mathematical and rational. Yep. And I've always felt that it's missing the overall narrative, this thing that distilled down to a few key points that people will actually remember and care about. And so you can be as rational as you want in your positioning to say, we actually have two features that the others, the others don't. Our competitive alternatives are this and this. Yep. But if you don't have this overall narrative and package around it, it's not going to tick with people that much, you know? And I'm glad you mentioned it and simplify it to the point of saying, who you are fighting for and what you're fighting against, because at the end of the day, that's what it really boils down to if you want to make it noticed. You know who's great at this? Um, Basecamp. So uh, they they kind of have picked their enemy. So Basecamp is basically project management kind of um, uh, team organization software. And their enemy became just craziness at work, right? So like, how do you get all of the, like work is incredibly stressful. How do you get all the craziness out of work? And certainly that was their product positioning. But then here's what happened. The founders separately started, uh, they wrote a book called Rework and they wrote a bunch of thought leadership articles on, God, we've gotten a little bit insane around the pressures to grow as, as as the industry goes. Like this whole hustle mentality, this whole like, you know, um, grow at any cost mentality, um, even at your own like personal cost, they, they made that the enemy um, of their own kind of personal brand. And those two enemies worked really well together. Because when you think about it, project management and craziness at work, the craziness of industry and work and like a personal diatribe against that kind of mentality, um, that becomes an overarching brand and identity. And whenever anybody goes to write an article on, um, on you know, overhyped uh, growth cycles or anybody goes to think about sanity at work, they think about Basecamp. Uh, so I think they've done a really good job translating product positioning into brand positioning and into kind of, a again, what they stand for as a company and as individuals. Yeah, a very good example as well. Yeah. Um, and it's tough, right, to find one thing uh, and to really have this one message because people tend to want to, like, we have this feature and we have this feature and we want to say that and that and that and that and that. Yeah. Um, so before we go into that, actually, I want to challenge you back on category creation, like, which you started to say you need to name it, like how spotting about marketing. Do you really have to name it? And remember here, like, people listening might not have like a massive company behind with big budgets, being able to name something and put ads all over the place to make sure people yeah. remember. Yeah, let me be clear. 
I do not think that you have to create a category. I think that you have to name the enemy. And so inbound marketing became a category, um, but with or without that category, we still needed to name outbound and uh, irrelevant ads as the enemy. So it's more about like, you need every sales rep to be able to say, we're, we're the anti-chaos at work or we're the anti-form. Um, that's what's important to name is what you're fighting against, not the category that you're in. Certainly category creation is a strategy that people do. It's, it's not always easy, right? It depends on the field you're in. There could already be like sometimes fighting against the, the terms that people use uh, is not the right approach. Why add more work so that you have to explain the category before you can explain the product? Inbound kind of evolved of a, as a category in its own right because we did a really good job nailing the enemy. But we didn't go out there saying we have to create a category here. Does that make sense? The difference between the it two. It does, and I'm glad. I'm glad you simplified it to this point. Like this, this is very well put and very simple, but yet very powerful. Yeah, you name the enemy. You don't don't overly obsess over calling your stuff like conversational marketing or inbound marketing software or whatever. It gets really jargony too. It's like, yeah. oh, we're going to make a new category and it's called experience marketing or we're going to, it gets just very, very yeah. big. Again, back to your earlier point, it is easier to get someone to relate to you over what they hate than over some aspirational vision. Yeah. And I kind of hate that about society. <laughs> There's a lot of bad to that. But when you're talking about, you know, finding that common enemy, that's the more powerful thing. But that's how we are wired as humans, you know. Yeah, At the end of the day, you can't, fight, you can't fight biology, and that's the way it is. So, like, we, we do we do connect on on common point of, of hate, and hate may be a strong word, but at least yeah. stuff we disagree with, right? Um, which is... Which is uh, which is very powerful, but yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you simplified it this way, and I, uh, we are in an agreement there. Um, and I believe that category creation, if taken too far, really doesn't benefit anyone and makes makes marketing makes mar give marketers a bad name because inventing new terms for stuff that already exists creates confusion for 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 the audience, create confusion for people, make them wonder if they are missing something out, and you have this vicious circle of like this massive FOMO happening for marketers. Oh, this new yeah. account-based marketing. I need to learn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I, yeah, that drives me nuts. So They end up being really short-term. I'm not, this is not about ABM, but but sometimes these things can end up being very like flash-in-the-pan, short-term hype cycles because you care more about the, the name of the thing and whether or not you can check that off than what the actual strategy is behind it. So that's awesome. Um, I'm glad we agree. Um, so let's go one step deeper onto this picking an enemy, right? How do you advise folks to pick an enemy? Let's say they have, they're not hundred percent clear on this. Like, do you have any tips on this? Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be, so this is, this is important, right? Like people get this wrong. In fact, I can't count the number of times people have been like, oh, email is dead or XYZ is over. You know, like if you, if you, if you pick an enemy too callously or too quickly and it's not actually in the grained in the reason you started the business and the thinking of the founders and uh, reverberated in what you hear from customers, it's, it's going to be really shallow. And so the number one thing I will tell you is take it seriously and it's not the sort of thing that you swap out all that often. You can evolve it as we have, but like um, it can't be a flippant discussion. You have to really uh, have that conversation about what it is the company stands for and why you decided to start this thing to begin with. Um, so I would take 
you know, I would do an offsite and um, or, you know, take a half day and really have the sort of conversations in a guided way about what it is that you want to be better in the world um, as a result of the fact that your product or company exists and then root everything in that. Don't let that slide as you get more products or more features. Um, I'll give you a great example. At HubSpot, we, when we first rolled out our sales product, a feature that was high demand out of the customer base that we um, initially had in the scope of the product was this like rapid auto dialer, right? So like just lines of calls. So you save a bunch of time as a sales rep. Here's the problem with a rapid auto dialer. It flies directly in the face of this idea of not harassing people when you mean to help them because you, there's no way you can get the context that you need on a person if you're just automatically connected to the next caller and the next caller and the next caller. So we had a really serious, hard discussion around whether to launch with that feature or not and decided to pull it um, and rework it so that it would be more in line with that belief system of, of um marketing to customers in the way that they would want to be marketed to and, and selling to them in the way they'd want to be sold to. Uh, so it can't be a marketing only thing. It's got to be full company. You have to ask the question every time you have a leadership meeting or a new product idea. Does this solve for that problem that we identified? Does it match with those ideals? Um, and look, you don't have to be a principled company or an idealistic company, but it certainly helps um, in, in developing like a really strong, loyal fan base because it gives them something to believe in. Yeah, this is a great example. Great example of how this, your entire positioning, uh, even if it's for a product, uh, like it helps you to shape the product itself. And, and that's what, that's what it is. If, if it wasn't a good positioning, you kind of, you could be anything and it wouldn't really help. So yeah, that's actually a very good example. Uh, uh, something I would add to this, um, is that your customers are the best people to extract the positioning out of, right? And I would I would advise you if you're listening to this podcast right now to take the time to talk to customers on the phone or face to face if you can and ask them those questions. You know, what do you hate the most about your job, or what are the things you dislike? Um, what do you do that you wish you know you could do like easier? Like trying to really dig out the things yeah. that are painful to like to make sure that you have something in line with them. And usually, usually there's something that comes up all the time. I don't know about you and your experience, but from my experience talking to customers, after a while, you hear the same thing. You start hearing the same thing. Yeah. And by hearing the same thing, the, you kind of feel within you the energy, like this kind mm -hmm. of feeling, this is it. Like, I know this is it. Because five people who don't know each other say the same thing in the same order, there must yeah. be something there. Now, the other thing about a crowded marketplace is, and I'll ask you this, what do you do if somebody already claimed your enemy, right? So what if there's a competitor out there that every one of their marketing materials talks about the same enemy that you feel like is your enemy? We get that asked a lot. We get asked that a lot. Um, and the, the response that I would give, and, and feel free to jump in with, with your thoughts on it too, is um, is there's twofold. Either you need to find a different angle on that enemy because the, either like maybe they're solving it for big businesses, but no one's solving it for small businesses or you need to execute on it way, way better. And so um, I think that that it's a thought process you have to go through when you're choosing an enemy if it's already been, um, you know, if the, 
if Salesforce came out and said no software, and then two months later, another company came out and said no software, like they're at a disadvantage. They either have to execute the hell out of that, or they have to talk about the area that Salesforce is missing um, in their positioning. Yeah. It's a very, I mean, you ask a good question and you replied to it well. I can see your podcast host as well. Uh, <laughs> I would say that I wouldn't, I would advise not to overly obsess over it, even if mm-hmm. there's like other, uh, other like similar stories out there, because the world is big enough, likely. Uh, and the work of going through this positioning and doing it well, the benefit of that in terms of alignment internally would far outweigh, I believe, the, the threat of direct competition. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't overly obsess over it. So many companies don't have any of the stuff you mentioned that like, if you already have that and a competitor have it, well, it sounds like it's actually a good thing because you have someone else who believes in the same thing. So yeah. the world is big enough, right? Totally. So step one, identify those people, like those crowd that, that really care your tribe. Step two, nail your positioning, nail this narrative. Uh, who are you fighting? Uh, uh, what are you fighting against and who are yeah. you fighting for? Step three, what do you do then once you have this information? You got to nail the launch strategy. You got to nail the rollout and the follow-up. So here's what I find where people go wrong in launch strategy is they put, they overvalue splashy things. They overvalue things that are exciting, right? So um, they maybe overvalue like something going viral on Twitter and they undervalue things that actually move the needle for your business like customer campaigns. So we will have, for every given launch, we'll have, um, you know, a customer campaign, a partner campaign, we'll have a public awareness campaign. Every channel gets hit in some way, shape or form. But you need to know the role that those channels are playing and actually the goals for that launch. Um, So, you know, sometimes we will release, release a feature that is incredibly important to our customers and they've been demanding it forever and it's going to be a huge boon to cross-sell, upsell, all that good stuff. Um, but it's kind of table stakes for um, for their larger field. We're going to put way more emphasis into the customer campaign for that um, and into the partner campaign than we are into does it get in the New York Times. Um, and so I think knowing what your arsenal is and, and mapping that well to your goals for the launch uh, and putting the most emphasis in the things that are actually going to drive the needle um, is really important. Uh, so it's it comes back to your earlier question too on like, how do you do this on zero dollars? I think that you have to know where you've got the the greatest leverage. So maybe you've got a blog that, that is taken off um, and is doing really well, you're going to lean into that. Maybe you've got no traffic to your website, but um, you do have some budget to put into ads and you do that. It's just don't run the same playbook for every single launch. Figure out what what it is that that particular product and launch needs. It's like the the channel. I I would say like pick one channel that Mm -hmm. has the highest leverage, as you say. So it's likely to be where your best customers hang out. And where you're gonna get the best bank for your bucks, even if the bank could be of bucks could be the time you spend instead of the money you spend. Uh, so yeah, let's say if you have a podcast and your website doesn't have much traffic, mm-hmm. obviously podcast is the way to go. But if you have a huge email list, uh, no podcast, no YouTube, whatever. I mean, it's it's kind of obvious, I think. But I'm yeah. glad you mentioned at the start, like going viral on Twitter. It's okay if you don't have a hashtag that goes viral on Twitter for your launch, yeah. right? 
It's no, fine, totally. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like the, there are some launches where it's like, this is an awareness campaign. People have no idea that we have this product. Our goal is that viral hashtag on Twitter. But not every campaign is going to need that. And so I, I do think that like, you know, people want the party uh, and the party is great if you can throw it. But um, make sure you don't lose sight of the thing that's actually going to pay the bills, too. So can you give me a quick breakdown of the type of campaigns you do? Because you already mentioned customer campaign, partner campaign, uh, awareness campaign. What are the others that you use? Like, or is it the top three? Uh, so we do it by audiences. So um, for a lot of our products, we'll have a primary audience, but then we'll have secondary audiences. So we think about a dedicated campaign to all of those. Um, and that could be like the marketer and their developer, or it could be the marketer and the um the agency um, or solutions partner that they use. So we think about campaigns at the audience level um, and the segments within that. And then we think about channels. So social, website, um, uh, video, audio, uh, advertising, performance ads versus brand ads, those sorts of things. Um, and we'll kind of build this, this cross-stitch of a campaign, a grand campaign around the intersection of those two things. So what audiences should be targeted? Um, and for the untargeted stuff, what are the um, most valuable channels for us in this? So how do you advise? Uh, so you broke it down this way, which is great. Um, there's a lot there. Um, how do you advise, like, as you said, like people with zero dollars um, who don't have a lot of energy, uh, Like we need to fucking nail this. Yeah, um, totally. How do you advise to pick the right channel, the right, the right combination of stuff? And then I'm remembering now what you what you said at the very start, which is you need to create a point of convergence. Um, mm -hmm. Like you need to have your enemy, your story. It could be a blog post, a podcast episode, but whatever. It seems like you advocate for just if you don't have that many places, just create one and bring everything to this. Correct. Yeah, I think either way you're going to want to drive everybody towards a central location just for pure tracking purposes. You're going to, there's a sign up flow that you're going to want to get them into. Um, and so you need to identify what that place is. And then I would take a step back and figure out um, who are the audiences that I need to get there. So maybe it's just one audience, which is great. And usually in early days, that's it. Um, what are the channels that is, that are best equipped to reach that audience? Um, and that'll depend a lot on who they are. So I can't give you like a, a blanket statement here, but you find the right mix of those channels um, and don't be exhaustive on it because everything that you, every ounce of energy that you pour into a channel that is less important is energy that you're detracting from the ones that really are. So get really focused on like, look, I'm going after mid-level marketers, um, you know, in these countries, uh, what is the channel mix that is going to get in front of them um, the best? And you just kind of build it out that way. I think what happens is that people just sort of feel like they need to throw the book at it um, in the early days. And it ends up spinning a lot of wheels without the same impact. Do you know the best example of this is our politicians. You can see for elections, just for elections in Ireland, for example, I've been living in Ireland for 10 years. So I've yeah. noticed patterns. You can see how politicians don't have any clue about what you just mentioned. Their market, their go-to-market strategy is is like they're clueless. So they would do blanket Facebook ads to literally everyone living in Ireland. You can actually go back. You can if you see the ads, you can click on you know 
uh, what are the segmentation rules and the rules are as simple as your age and you live in Ireland. How are you supposed to actually get a tribe, you know, rally against a common enemy uh, with this type of targeting? So to me, like politicians are the, except like maybe a few exceptions out there who did it properly before, but usually don't follow their lead. Um, they really struggle at it and more marketers and product marketers need to work with them to, yeah. uh, to help them. Um, so we have, um, we have our tribe, we have uh, our positioning, we know where they hang out, we know the channels we need to hit, um, and we, need, we know we need to focus, because if we don't, it's, it's going to be difficult. Within the story we tell, like, there's something interesting that I've read about you, I mean, in, in your different bio and stuff, is you, you really put a lot of emphasis on the adoption phase, making sure that not only people notice your stuff when you launch them, but how do you make sure they adopt it? We don't have a lot of time, but like sure. if you had to pick your number one thing, you'd advise people to make sure that when they launch something, it also gets adopted and stick around. What would it be? So measure interest and adoption at the day of launch, seven days after, 30 days after, 90 days after. Look for differences um, between those things and where people are falling off. If... Um, they're falling off at the demand stage, you know what to do with that. If they are, if the demand is sort of leveled out and is pretty even, but they're falling off at the activation phase, you know what to do with that. But understanding behavior, putting a microscope on, wow, you just threw this big party, everybody's in there, where are they leaving and why? That will help you create the habits that is going to make this a lasting product in the long run. Uh, that's really it. It's just don't, don't do the launch and then walk away from it. Make sure that you're keeping an eye on it for the first 90 days after. Yeah, amen to that. So you you have you you just make sure to track adoption, as you said. So first day, seven day, 30 days, 90 days, is that it? That's what we do internally. You can adapt that to whatever um, whatever you like, but yeah. And just let me repeat to make sure I understand properly. You you then watch out for those cohorts, like when they are in time and look at how they behave through the funnel. So you, you use a traditional uh, um, R funnel. Uh, so acquisition, activation, re uh, revenue is the last one. So what is it again? I'm putting on You're the, talking on the about the R, the, yeah, the yeah, pirate yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, pirate. yeah, I think it depends by, by product. I'll tell you, like what we look at is... Well, we, we look at awareness. So um, how, how oh, yeah. is some of that like external content doing? <laughs> then we look at acquisition. Then we look at activation. And then we kind of look at long-term adoption and revenue. I don't know how many A's there is in that R, but that's kind of what we're keeping an eye on. Cool. Okay. And yeah, you just make sure that like where do they fall off and then you fix stuff as you go so that the next launch could be better and better and better. Megan, you've been absolute pleasure. Usually I disagree a lot with my guests. No, I don't actually. I, I don't. We tend to agree a lot, but I agree on everything you said. Uh, and I very much connect with a lot of stuff, especially on positioning. So thank you for going through this step-by-step -step with me. I just have a few questions left before I let you go. You got it. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 5, 10, 50 years? Adaptability, honestly, because I, I think you should get fascinated in every new technology, every new tool that comes out, but also be ready to abandon that tool for something else a year from now. I think that marketing is moving so fast and technology is enabling so many new things that just that that thirst for new playbooks is what's going to help you 
in the future, um, but also the ability to not get stuck along the way, um, not have, you know, too much adherence. Like right now, um, you know, AI and chat and and bots and like a bunch of things are really, really effective and cool right now. And maybe they'll continue um, or maybe something new will emerge. And so it's just the the need to stay on top of these things and evolve with them. Yeah. And tools come and go, right? So yeah. exactly as you said, it's be careful not to fall over like the exit, uh, the obsessing over those new technology and forgetting the fundamentals that you talked about. Yeah. And the same goes for strategies. I mean, I think like strategies change, uh, you know, forms rise and fall. ABM, you know, is popular, but also going through some regulation stuff. I think like just be curious about how the world around you is evolving uh, because and that goes, by the way, for all the algorithms that rule our lives, like the Google algorithm and the Facebook algorithm and everything that dictates how content gets discovered. That stuff is just changing by the minute. So it's a little bit of a cop out, but I would say adaptability. No, it doesn't feel like a cop out at all. I think that's very much the mindset that marketers need to have. So thank you. What yeah. are the top three resources you'd recommend marketers today? So it could be anything, podcasts, books, conferences, whatever. Okay, I wrote a couple down because I knew this one was coming, so I won't even try to ad-lib this one. Conferences, I think that um, obviously HubSpot is inbound, um, so I'll, I'll put in a plug for that. Uh, Saster is coming up. I always like Saster as a conference. And then there's sort of a new one that Wes Bush uh, rolled out called Product-Led Growth. Growth. It's more of a virtual conference, but I find that uh, people who have, have gone to that have gotten a lot out of it. Um, I think in terms of programs and education, the people that have gone through Reforge, uh, by which is sort of a masterclass by Brian Balfour, come back entirely different. Like they they have a real discipline around growth that um, that tells me that's just like an incredibly powerful uh, program to go through. Um, and I should say that I know Brian, and, and he used to work at HubSpot, but uh, Reforge is his project afterwards. Um, podcasts. Um, I think this one's great. I'm going to put in a plug for this one. I also listen to um, Animals, uh, which is a, a content strategy podcast. Um, and my colleague Kieran Flanagan has one called Growth TLDR, which has some really interesting conversations on it um, that they're, they're always in my rotation. That's I get a lot of my lessons through podcasts because it's what I have time to listen to. Um, there haven't been a lot of like really great business books lately. So I I'm, tend to be learning through conversations like these. Yeah. Likewise, I talked to Kieran on the podcast. It was a great episode. Uh, I also talked to Brian Balfour on the podcast. Oh, cool. Great okay. Episode. Yeah, not uh, to stick to the same crowd always, but... Well, that's good people are good people. So yeah. I, I would second Reforge, very, very strong reputation out there. Um, it's, it's expensive, but I, I wouldn't say it's expensive. It's just very valuable. Therefore, the cost... Yeah. Is yeah. in line with that, you know? It's it's a commitment. It's not like a, yeah, a quick exactly. learning thing. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Great. Well, Megan, once again, it's been a pleasure. Like seriously, learned a lot from you. Thanks for sharing your experience. People listening right now, if you're still listening to this episode, you might know that it took me almost two years to be able to talk to Megan. So she's a big deal. Where I can really... not big of a deal. I just <laughs> can't get my calendar together is what that is. Where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you and get a reply in two years? Uh, <laughs> I'm probably, ironically, I'm like the fastest reply on Twitter. Uh, so it's just uh, Meg, uh, M-E-G-H, Keeney, K 
K-E-A-N-E-Y on Twitter. And then um, I do have the podcast, The Growth Show. So if you like the sound of my voice, you can listen there. Um, those are probably the best two ways. Um, other than that, I'm a, I'm a marketer. I'm highly Googleable. If you search my name, you will come across writing and podcasts and uh, interviews and all sorts of stuff. But certainly give those two a shot. I'm highly Googleable. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. And once again, thanks so much. Great to talk to you, Louis. Thanks a lot. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always... Uh, can improve. So you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com. Good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.